This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio broadcast of interviews presenting a Baha'i perspective on life. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. Or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing an interview with Mary Kay McCoskey, a Baha'i from Suffield, Connecticut, who's an actor by training. As soon as she met her husband, she went to Ireland, and it was there that she ran into the Baha'i faith. I started the interview by asking Mary Kay where she grew up, and what was it like growing up there? I grew up in Buffalo, New York, and it was right in the middle of the city. We lived on the east side, and um, I went to a public kindergarten, and it was great. I had a good kindergarten experience, except for the first day, which I remember well, because the teacher didn't seem to be very nice, but the teacher's aide was really nice, and I remember her, and she was she was cool. So mm-hmm. after that, I had a great experience. Mm-hmm. And then I went to Catholic school. We were a Catholic family, very mm-hmm. devoted, and I went to Catholic school grades one through eight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was great. I got a great education. And then I went to Catholic high school. Aha. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I, and that was a Catholic girls high school. And I continued my education. I was a cut up and a clown and the class clown. And that was a lot of fun to yeah. disobey all the rules. <laughs> And then I went to, in, still in Buffalo, New York, a Catholic college, oh Catholic women's college. So I had a lot of good Catholic education, mm-hmm. and I was very devoted to the concept of the Catholic faith. Mm-hmm. And what did you study at, in college? Oh, I studied theater mm-hmm. and English. Mm. Mm-hmm. And which Catholic college was this? It's Deuville College, and it's named after a woman who came from Montreal, started an order of um, nuns, and was devoted to education. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember in my junior year in college, I began to question why it was that the church taught that all only Catholics could be saved. Mm. This is what I learned. It's very possible that not every Catholic believes this, and in fact, the church may not teach it. Now, I haven't kept up too much with the church's teachings. And I would wonder why, for example, Buddhists, who seem to lead wonderful lives and be very devoted and be very religious and be following their way of life, why were they excluded from being saved? Mm -hmm. So I remember one, in my junior year in theology class, we had a priest who taught the class, and I asked him this question. 
And to tell you the truth, I don't remember his answer, but I remember how angry he got and how red in the face he got and how absolutely upset he got with the question. So I think that started me thinking, why is this so irritating Mm. to this person? I think if he had just given a very relaxed answer, I wouldn't have thought about it. But I thought, why why is this so upsetting? So I began to wonder then a little bit more about the teachings of that I had been learning all my life and loved the essential teachings of the Catholic Church, the Christian faith, mm-hmm. the Ten Commandments, if you will, mm-hmm. but didn't like the particular teachings that were seemed to be very exclusive. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the experiences I remember. Mm-hmm. And, and the other thing about... Um, that I remember about college was that it was women's education, which was actually very good, but I did miss the sound of male voices, male laughter. So it was a girls' college. It was a women's Women's college. college. (laughs) (laughs) My daughter, who went to Mount Holyoke, which is a women's college, taught me not to call it a girls' school. (laughs) And the listeners out there should know never to do that either. And probably know that already. Right, right. So uh, what happened after college? After college, I went to graduate school in Cleveland, Ohio, majored in, uh, went to graduate school and got a uh, master's degree in theater. Mm -hmm. And I... um, I got hired by a professional theater, but within a week met my hus- my to-be husband, and we decided to get married and move to Ireland. So that's mm. what we did. Okay. Yeah. And what were the circumstances that you met Chad? Oh, I was living in Cleveland in Little Italy in an apartment that a lot of students lived in, and Chet was a young graphic designer at that time, and I would always see this... Um, sports car parked in the driveway. It was a green Morgan. And I always thought, wow, that's really that's really a nice car. I wonder who owns that. Mm-hmm. And then I, w- there were a lot of mailboxes. All these houses in Little Italy had been turned into apartments. So everybody got everybody else's mail. And I got this, I used to get this guy's draft notices, Chester McCoskey. And I thought, who's this Polish person? I'm getting his draft notices. Man, I hope I never meet him. And so, of course, um, Providence saw to it that I, of course, did. And oh, growing up in Buffalo, we lived near the Polish section, and there were a lot of there was a lot of ethnic prejudice in in my town. Mm-hmm. And so, I resolved growing up that I would never, ever marry a person of Polish background. Oh my God! And of course. <laughs> Providence saw to it that I did. And what was your nationality? My national, my background is Irish and German. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but yeah. becoming a Baha'i, obviously, I realized that it's not only um, trying to get away from all prejudice of all kinds, but it's actually um, enriching mm. in your life to be able to know people of different. Mm. Backgrounds, whatever I, that is. I suspect you're probably heading in that direction already by the time you were in grad school. That yeah, yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, in grad school, oh boy, I hope my mom doesn't listen to this. But in grad school, I actually started to go out with a person of African descent, mm-hmm. and I think in the late '60s, it wasn't really. Um, 
it wasn't done too much then, but in the theater, it, one of the nice things about the theater is that at least the theaters I've been involved with is with is that everything is acceptable. No, no matter who you are, or what you believe, um, everything's acceptable as long as you do a good job on stage and support your fellow actors, etc. So I began going out with a with a man of African descent, not realizing the extent of prejudice in my family, mm. and um, I thought, I guess I grew up thinking my family wasn't as prejudiced as it was, and I said to my family, I'm going to bring him home for Christmas, we're going to, you know, and the shock and the silence and the, it would kill your father type of thing, uh, I just thought, oh, uh, what's going on here? <laughs> Um, and what was the graduate school you were going to? Uh, Case Western Reserve University. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what happened after grad school? After grad school, I met my husband, and we, within a few months of knowing each other, and I also had resolved, by the way, I wouldn't ever marry somebody that I hadn't known for less than two years. And of course, of course, we were married in eight months and moved to <laughs> so, Ireland. So two resolutions. Two resolutions, yes. So... <laughs> Completely, um, you know, in the Baha'i faith, one of the one of the things Baha'u'llah talks a lot about in the writings of the Baha'i faith is a concept of detachment, mm. which means that you have to step back and not be attached to any of your ideas or any of any of the things that you're attached to. Because if you are so attached to them, then you miss the good things that come your way, and you miss what you could become or what you're being asked to become. In fact, Baha'u'llah says that a true seeker, in order to find the object of her quest or his quest, must become detached from everything. So I guess I was, I was playfully detached by God from all of these things. And mm -hmm. So we moved to Ireland. And, and why? You know, at that time, there was a chance that uh, Nixon might be made president, and we weren't really politically involved, but we thought we w were worried enough about the world situation that we didn't want this person to be president, so we thought um, we, we would just leave America. America was going downhill, we thought. <laughs> and so we we thought to ourselves, well, where where would we be, where would people not even Look, you know, where would trouble never come to? Oh, Ireland. <laughs> you can see how naive we were <laughs> because Ireland was in the midst of its own troubles mm -hmm. uh, of disunity and problems. Mm -hmm. But in any case, we went to Ireland and we settled around Dublin and it was really one of the most wonderful things we ever did. Mm -hmm. The Irish people, the whole... It's a, such a spiritual country. The fact that they think they're arguing about religion is that's not really what the argument is about because the founders of those religions never um, never wrote that uh, people should kill each other and people should hurt each other. So what they're arguing about is quite different. But we found the Irish people to be amazing. And in fact, our daughter was born there 10 months after we got married and she now lives in Haifa, Israel with her husband and small child. Mm. And so... Um, so that was one wonderful, and we found the Baha'i faith in Ireland. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. So tell me about that experience. We actually uh, were not seekers. We 
both of us had um, been not too enamored of religion. We did get, have a Catholic wedding. It all seemed to go well, but my husband never really was too involved in his um, religious background, which, which was is. also Catholic, mm-hmm. growing up in Cleveland as he did, as as a person of Polish background. And so he had had enough experiences with the church to know that it wasn't really for him. And as I had remarked previously, I was kind of like not interested in religion because I was just not happy with its exclusivity. And then we had a daughter. Mm. And of course, all of the things I had learned came back. Oh, I have to have her baptized and all of this. So actually, I think Sarah does have a baptismal certificate somewhere. But um, I met this couple who was an American couple, the O'Briens. They happened to have an Irish last name, but they were an American couple. And I couldn't for the life of me figure out why they were living in Ireland. Um, Philip was an actor. And Jane was a nutrition specialist. But they were so sweet and so loving, and they shared with... She was a a leader in La Leche League. I knew I wanted a natural birth. I wanted to breastfeed my child. So I hooked up with her, and um, she was so kind to me. And over seven months, I gradually got to know them, and I found out they were Baha'is. And I said to Chet, that's one thing we can't talk to them about. You can't talk to people about religion. I had learned growing up that three subjects, sex, religion, and politics, would get you in trouble in polite conversations, so you should avoid them at all costs. So I did, and (laughs) they were so kind and sweet. They never forced it, but they would say things like, well, Chet and Mary Kay, we can't see you tonight because we're going to a Baha'i meeting. And say, oh, okay, have a good time. We'll see you next week, whenever. And we we even went into business with them. Mm. Um, they imported macrobiotic foods, which, again, for the early 70s in Ireland was just the Irish didn't know what to do with them. But in any case, we uh, went into business with them. And then our daughter Sarah was growing up, and we decided we want to, we really don't want to be isolated in this country away from her grandparents. So we decided that for family unity, we would go home. Mm. So we were on the verge of leaving. How old was Sarah at the time? Sarah was about a year old at this time. Yeah. So we said, oh, we're going to go home. And we decided to do that. And one day, Philip, uh, who was the Baha'i, the actor, came over to our house and he seemed very agitated and we said Philip what's wrong we've never seen you like this are you okay and he said I just have to ask you how are you going to raise that child and we said well we never thought about it we really don't like the Catholic faith but he meant religiously of course and we knew what he meant and we said well I guess we'll figure something out and he said will you please let me tell you about the Baha'i faith Mm. we said of course Philip we love you you're our friend We'll, we'll, we'd love to have you tell us about the Baha'i faith. So he said, I guess this was a Friday. He said, next Tuesday, I want you to come to dinner at my house. I have a special guest. Um, he'll explain the Baha'i faith to you. We thought, oh, that was good. Meanwhile, because we were now getting out of the food business with them, Chet and Philip had to 
um, divest we had to divest ourselves of all these 50 and 100 pound bags of rice that we had. So on a trip from Dublin to Cork, Philip and Chet drove on this four-hour trip one way, and Philip said to Chet, why don't you let me tell you about the Baha'i faith? We're going to be in the car. We've run out of small talk. What do you think? And maybe you'll interview Chet, and he'll tell you that story. But Chet was dumbfounded that anything like this existed, and I think became a Baha'i immediately once he heard of it. Oh, wow. So he came home and he said, oh, Philip told me about the Baha'i faith and it's great. I said, well, what's it like? He said, I can't really explain it to you, but, but it's great. <laughs> so we, I had to wait till Tuesday. And then Tuesday they had a, a wonderful man by the, uh, of Persian background whose father had known Baha'u'llah. Mm. This man's name was Mr. Adib Tahirzadeh, who eventually served on the Universal House of Justice, which is the International Governing Council of the Baha'i Faith. He mm. passed away in 2000, Mr. Tahirzadeh did, but he gave us a three-hour history of the faith, and we were fascinated. We were fascinated. Mm. Chet, of course, was a Baha'i immediately, as I said. I thought that this was a great idea, but all of my Catholic background rose up in my head. Mm. Not, not the Catholic, not the promises of Jesus that he would return, which I never really understood because I didn't read the Bible, but all of the, the statements I thought I had heard about the Antichrist and the, and then I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. God gave me a rational mind. He wants me to use my rational mind. We had, by the way, had investigated transcendental meditation, found it wanting, other things. All these gurus found them wanting. So I thought, I'll read what this guy Baha'u'llah has written. I called him this guy Baha'u'llah. And I couldn't pronounce Baha'u'llah's name correctly at that time. I can't remember. I said, give me something he's written. I'll figure it out. So Philip gave me a wonderful compilation of Baha'u'llah's writings called Gleanings. And anybody who's listening to this show who hasn't read Gleanings, I um, really highly recommend that you, that you look at that compilation of Baha'u'llah's writings hmm. because it has advice for as seemingly every conceivable situation in the world. It's very interesting. Anyway, I opened it to a any page, I glanced at the page, I read about four sentences, and I said to myself, wow, nobody can write like this. No human can write like this. this mm -hmm. To me, it was proof that here was something going on that wasn't, um, wasn't just from the human ego, that it had to be divinely inspired. And the reason I said that was because I had read pretty widely the writings or the sayings of these so-called gurus who were in existence at that time, and they all seemed so self-centered, and they all seemed so egotistical, and they all seemed so weird. Mm -hmm. This seemed universal, lofty, and really, when you read the words of Jesus, when you read the words of Buddha, such as we have, when you read the words of uh, Muhammad, they fill you with the same feeling mm. because they're divinely inspired. Mm. So this is so. Then I became a Baha'i from that time on. So both you and Chet became Baha'is, and before you went back to the United States. <laughs> yes, yes, we did, and we came back, and we. Oh, the reactions of our families were quite. Um, 
interesting. They, of course, it was the time at which people were joining ashrams and young kids were leaving their parents and never coming back. And I can quite sympathize now with my mom and dad's reactions and my husband's parents' reactions as well. I'll tell you, they never stopped us from practicing our faith and they, they weren't happy that we had become Baha'is. They would have rather had us stayed in the Catholic faith, which I can quite understand now being a parent myself. Mm-hmm. But actually, when we had children and our children became teenagers, they began, because we taught them according to the Baha'i guidance, and this is no guarantee that any child is going to follow anything that is taught in the home, mm-hmm. but the point is that we did have all of the Baha'i guidance, which has a vast array of help for parents for um, guiding your children in this in this age, mm-hmm. which is so challenging. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't that our kids weren't challenging. We had many challenging moments with the children, um, like any parent would in this culture. But growing up, our children were taught that, A, it's not you pick your friends based on their character and not on the color of their skin, their ethnic background, their economic status. You you choose your you choose your friends because of the goodness of their character, and that's really how you choose your your life partner as well. So that was the first thing we taught them, and the second thing we taught them, aside from praying every day, mm-hmm. was that they were to be of service in this world. And that's exactly what they chose to do. Both of them became, um, in their youth years, both of them became um, uh, involved with social and economic development projects, and they're both serving in that way today. Mm. And they chose to become Baha'is. You see, at, at age 15, which is considered the age of spiritual maturity in the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah decrees that is the age of spiritual maturity, the children decided what they wanted to be, and they chose to become Baha'is. Mm. And what's your mother's point of view on the Baha'i faith now? Oh, my mom loves the Baha'is now. In fact, um, my mom lives with us now. She's 91. She goes to Mass every day. She is. Uh, she plays the organ at church. Um, she just left for Mass a little while ago, the 4 o'clock Mass. What we- church? It's Sacred Heart Church in uh, Suffield, Connecticut, and really a valued member of that faith community and really serves a lot. And I think I learned a lot of the way to behave from my mom and her service for her faith community. Mm. But now it's uh, we get along beautifully. She loves the Baha'is. We love her friends. She has prayer meetings here for her um her friends. We have devotional meetings here for the Baha'is. We all attend each other's devotional meetings. It's it's great. I think my dad, who was most against the faith, was really not against the Baha'i faith per se, but he was worried that I wouldn't be saved because mm-hmm. he grew up with that same worry. And I think it was out of love for me. So he passed in 2000, and I pray for his progress of his soul every day. And I know he actively... Um, I'm sure is involved in my life too and prays for me because in the Baha'i faith there's a there's a a reference to the souls who have passed from this life mm. 
Um, it's pray for them as they pray for you. Mm-hmm. So we know that they're capable of helping us as we can help them. And I know my dad understands so much more now in that wider area that he's in now in the next life than he did in this life. Yeah. Yeah. So you came back to the United States, and what (laughs) happened after that? Came back to the United States, and um, my husband started work here as a graphic designer and is now ready to retire (laughs) as a graphic, owning his own graphic design firm. Mm -hmm. And uh, now he works for, both of us have worked for the Baha'i Faith, Baha'i Administrative Mm -hmm. Order, is the Baha'u'llah brought... Baha'u'llah conceived the Baha'i Administrative Order, which is how the Baha'is govern themselves. And there's an elected arm and an appointed arm, and we've served on both. And the appointed arm has no, there's no clergy or priesthood in the faith. There's no authority to that appointed arm. They're just advisors. Um, And the Baha'is are completely free to take that advice or reject that advice. The elected um, arm of the faith is the the arm that has authority, and those elections are carried out yearly on a local and national basis, uh, democratically, but by secret ballot. There's no campaigning. There's no um, <laughs> there's no mention of names, and intellectually, you would say to yourself, "Wow, how can a system?" progress that way, but in fact it it does quite well and it has done so over the past 75 years in this country and um, actually some of the governments of the world are looking at the Baha'i model. I know Namibia at one point had a white paper on examining the Baha'i electoral process because it, um, it found aspects in that electoral process which it wished to emulate. Mm. So now Chet serves as secretary of a regional uh, council elected of of Baha'is, nine members of this council who uh, helped to administer the uh, growth of the Baha'i faith in the nine northeastern states. There are five in the United States, five of these regional councils, which report to one uh, national council called the National Spiritual Assembly. Internationally, the Baha'is elect um, the International Council, which is called the Universal House of Justice, with its headquarters in Haifa, Israel. Um, that is elected once every five years. But again, uh, tomorrow, for example, most of the Baha'is in this country will go to their uh, electoral unit convention to elect the one delegate who will go then in April to the national convention who will elect the national body. Mm. And that delegate interestingly enough, is not responsible to any constituency. That delegate who gets elected at the local level, of course, is fully aware of and knows the Baha'is at that local level, but goes to the national level and consults uh, at a four-day conference or convention in April um, on matters of national importance completely according to their own heart and conscience. They're, they don't have a constituency that they're responsible to, and so they're completely freed from any um, control by at the local level yeah. uh, by people who want to uh, sway their thinking. Mm. So that's another feature of the Baha'i electoral process that's really attractive to me as a Baha'i. Mm-hmm. 
Now, you ended up in this part of the country, but you said you started in the Midwest. So I was wondering how, when you came back to from Ireland, you said that... Oh, I went to the Midwest. Yeah, I met Chet in the, the Midwest. Midwest. We never went back there. Never we, went we back. settled. We settled in Connecticut when we came back from Ireland. And how, did it, how is it that you picked Connecticut? Well, when we came back from Ireland, we did a... We actually investigated the towns where we might like to live. And we've done a lot of investigating over our <laughs> ever since we became Baha'is because one of the principles of the Baha'i faith is that a person must investigate truth on his or her own and not just accept that which you have heard or um, but but really has to investigate truth on your own. So we thought, well, that applies not only to religion but everywhere. So we investigated places to live, and Connecticut seemed to have. Um, places that seemed attractive and were good for work, so that's why we settled here. Mm -hmm. Now, you were an actor by trade. That's right. <laughs> and during this yeah. time period, have you had an opportunity to use your craft? Well, in the past, um, I never actually... that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now you can explain. <laughs> I, uh, um, I worked at a variety of jobs until 1994. I was uh, employed by a division of United Technologies, and I left because I felt that I could do more for... Uh, one of the things I was very attracted to was the unity of the human race, which is a principle of the Baha'i faith. In fact, unity is both a principle and a mode of operation for Baha'is. And so I had a friend. She's of African descent. She grew up in New Orleans. She was also a Baha'i. And our sons became best friends in high school. And Thelma and I were both interested in this principle of race unity, and we wanted to do it in a way that went to the heart of the matter through the emotions and through art, not through the intellect, because we thought that the problem of prejudice in this country, the problem of um, racism in this country, is not an intellectual one. If it had been able to be solved intellectually, it could have been solved hundreds of years ago, but it isn't. It's a problem of the heart and of the, of the emotions and of... Um, of how you learn growing up, you know, what your experiences are. So we wanted to bring an experiential process to our audiences, so we came together and put this little 90-minute two-woman show together called Amazing Grace, and it was framed within the story of John Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. John Newton was an English slave trader, who had an epiphany and uh, became um, a minister and actually worked against slavery at the end of his life. And his sermons actually helped um, the British Parliament, were published in the British Parliament, and actually helped end the slave trade in 1807. But in any case, we, we framed a lot of um, uh, stories, true stories, where people changed from hate to love. And we toured with that show all over the United States and in Canada for about, um, oh, for about six years. Mm. And it was good. And now, I've, of course, it's 
I gave the I give the script out to anybody because it's just poems and stories and things that we compiled and put together. And I understand others have performed it with a good degree of success, which is nice. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, I have had the opportunity to use my acting talent for mm-hmm. actually for a principle that I believe in, which is great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, that's why I I did a lot of community theater work prior to that, and it just wasn't satisfying to me because it seemed that everything that acting was all about was ego. You know, get the applause, and it's all about getting the applause at the end and I thought no that's not what it's about Baha'u'llah's writings say that that's what we have to free ourselves from is ego so Mm. how can I do that so then in thinking about it this came to mind so what does the uh, future hold for you Mary Kay oh the future oh my goodness (laughs) well now I have five grandchildren four are in this world and one is in the next world (laughs) oh really yeah one of my daughter's first baby was um it it was found that this child had perished in 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 the womb Mm. and so this little baby is now buried in a wonderful cemetery near the baha'i house of worship in uh, Will met Illinois. The cemeteries in Skokie, mm. so it's nice to be able to visit that little grave. Mm. And so, well, I have four grandchildren who keep me quite busy in this world, and so a lot is um, connected with them. But actually, that's such a good question because you think, what does your life hold for you right now? It's taking care of my mom, and again, I think about Baha'u'llah's writings. Baha'u'llah states that service to one's parents is like service to God. Mm. And so, um, so, so that's one thing. The other thing is that I'm helping, I, I'm serving as a tutor in the Baha'i community. And right now the Baha'is are intensely interested in examining the fundamental verities of religion. And they're inviting their friends and their family and their neighbors and co-workers to come along on this journey of discovery about spiritual reality and um, Baha'is examine things like life after death and what is prayer and what is service and uh, what does it mean to be truthful and all of these things and what what are these things we call the virtues generosity, respect, love um, honesty all of these things and they invite you know people to come along with them and discover what this means. So that's really what I'm engaged in right now mm. is is um, serving as a tutor in taking groups called study circles. A group of people get together and they decide to study these things and they go for a period of two or three months. They meet regularly and decide then to... There are, there are books that are put out by um, Baha'i-inspired organizations to do this and people find this quite exhilarating. Mm. The other thing I'm interested in is um, the Baha'is are also interested in right now are um, gatherings where people just come together and pray and prayer is so necessary. We Mm. pray for anything what people want to pray for their loved ones their children pray for health 
pray for the betterment of the world. It's so uniting and so wonderful. And people say their own prayers. They say the Baha'i prayers. Baha'is have many prayers, uh, which they freely share, but others also pray from their heart. So mm-hmm. the other that's the other thing. And the final thing I'm really interested in is, even though my children are all grown up, um, Baha'is are very much the International Council of the Faith, the Universal House of Justice, had told the Baha'is that they have to pay attention to the children of the world. The children of the world have a terrible plight right now. Um, children are being used as soldiers, being used as sex slaves, being neglected by their families, um, suffering th- through child pornography. That There's just the children of the world are in a terrible plight and it really doesn't matter how materialistically well off you are um, many of the children in society are suffering in ways that they've never suffered before so we're interested in 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 um, gathering children and junior youth together junior youth say the 12 13 and 14 year olds and just uh, sitting down and with the permission of their parents examining these spiritual realities which we call virtues um, which which basically mean um, things like how do you become generous and faithful and loving and wise and trustworthy and um, how do you do these things in a society which is so challenging to you which um, which you find it very hard to raise a child like this so that's what I'm doing right now and hopefully I can do it until I die and move on <laughs> to whatever I need to move on to Baha'u'llah says there are many countless worlds of God so this is just one of them well Mary Kay thank you very much <laughs> you're welcome it was such a pleasure to be with you thank you I hope you enjoyed that interview with Mary Kay McCoskey a Baha'i from Suffield Connecticut an actor for many years and now a member of the Regional Council for the Northeast Baha'is. For a copy of this and other interviews, you're welcome to visit the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
come on the peace train. It's peace train, holy roller. Everyone come on the peace train. Come on the peace train. Get your bags together. Go bring your good friends too. Handed, 
So all I can call these things my own Gonna give them to you Hold the earth in the palm of my hand So say the wise and the sages I've got nothing but I'm working God's land I've got the wealth of the ages Wear the clothing of the common man Doing the work of the angels Time flies like fine grains of sand Life is a turn of the pages And I'll give it to you Cause I can't give away what isn't mine And all that I have is my life and my time And the feel of a hometown where I landed The slipping away I'll be empty-handed So all I can call these things my own Give them to you She looked inside herself, she wasn't sure what she'd find She had to open the door a little wider now 
She had to dig a little deeper inside her somehow She walked into the fire Alone and scared stiff Now she says his leaving was a strangely wrapped gift Little Jamie's body has never worked right He's never had the peace of sleeping straight through the night His parents get weary and his parents get warm Still they always bless the day that little Jamie was born He opens the door a little wider now Lifts them up a little higher somehow It may look to the world like a 24-hour shift But his folks know life with Jamie is just a strangely wrapped gift What is it that we're really made of? doorstep looks sad and forlorn the wrapping paper's faded it's all tattered and torn for a moment i wonder what on earth it might be till i see the tag and realize it's made out to me it's gonna open the door a little wider now Lift me up a little higher somehow I used to run like the blazes Now I get the drift Someone who loves me Send me a strangely wrapped gift Someone who loves me Someone who really, really Someone who loves me sent me a strangely bad great human garden 
Even as flowers grow and blend together side by side
together side by side by
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.